Let's open our Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Today we continue to look at what God says about influences. Influences. Last time has been a few weeks now. Uh, we learned about the need to observe, observe, mark, and follow after godly influences. Today we will look at the need to avoid those who Paul says are the enemies of the cross of Christ. So I'm going to read Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to read starting at verse 17 to verse through verse 1 of chapter 4. And the word of the Lord says, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction whose God is their appetite and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Amen. Well, I started to read at verse 17, and that was the one text that I looked at the last time I preached on following after godly examples. And I just want to remind you that this is part of a whole section that Paul starts uh, at verse uh, 11 or really verse 12 where he gives us idea the main goal or the main pursuit in the christian's life should be doing what to becoming like christ that's our whole aim in life you know there's a lot of things we can focus on but but paul here in the preceding text outlines that the believer's main focus where he says i press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of god in christ jesus And right before that, in verse 13, he says, I forget what lies behind and I reach forward to what lies ahead. This idea of becoming like Christ, friends, is the whole reason why Christ saved us, according to Romans 8, verse 29, where he says that God predestined you, that means to pick before the world began, that you would become conformed to the image of Christ. So God chose you before the foundation of the world, not only to be saved, but to be conformed to the image of Christ. And that's the whole process of sanctification in this life is that we we inch by inch slowly become more and more like Christ as revealed in the scriptures. Amen. And I covered that. It's important to know that we become like Christ as the scriptures say, not as the Jesus that we conjure up in our own mind based upon our own emotions but God revealed Christ through his word, and, and that's how we know how to become like him. Uh, so this, this is part of this whole section that Paul, after he says, okay, our main pursuit, and I love how this sanctuary is set up with the, with the cave there in the back, because it's almost like a narrow uh, uh, coming closer, and, and our, our pursuit is to become like Christ. We're on the narrow way. We're seeking to be more and more like him, to grow in our holiness and sanctification, and then as we're doing that, he says in verse, in verse 17, is to follow my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. 
That's the holiness. As we're seeking Christ, he's the ultimate example. Paul, and more importantly, the Holy Spirit, tells us as we're seeking to be more like Christ, we need to look around and see who is being like Christ, who's following Christ. We need to mark them and we need to follow them. Christ is our ultimate example. He's the perfection, right? But did you know that there's certain things that we need to see with our own flesh eyes to become more like Christ? We need to see those godly examples who fail, but they don't stay in their failure. They repent and they keep seeking to be like Christ. We need to find those people and we need to mark those people. He says, observe them and follow after those people. So, God, so godly influences, influences in general, friends, are so vital to our walk in Christ. Godly influences and negative influences. And there's no ifs, ands, or buts. Whoever you're around listening to, watching, talking with, you will become like them. That's why this is such a vital topic. I want to read what J.C. Ryle said on influences. He said, quote, nothing perhaps affects man's character more than the company he keeps. We catch the ways and tone of those we live and talk with and happily get harm far more, or excuse me, and unhappily get harm far more easily than good. He says, disease is infectious, but health is not. Now, if a professing Christian, he says, deliberately chooses to be intimate with those who are not friends of God and who cling to the world, his soul is sure to take harm. It is hard enough to serve Christ under any circumstances in such a world as this, but it is doubly hard to do it if we are friends of the thoughtless and the ungodly. Continuing his quote, he says, mistakes in friendship or marriage engagements are the whole reason why some have entirely ceased to grow. Evil communications corrupts good manners and the friendship of the world is enmity with God, 1 Corinthians 15, 33, and James 4, 4, end quote. Influences are, such, are so vital to your walk. And last time we looked at the positive side to follow after godly examples. Today we're going to look at how to discern and avoid those who are enemies of the cross of Christ. And I'm afraid that many Christians just today don't have that discernment. The church as a whole doesn't teach the people to have that discernment. And the first point is that we must discern and avoid enemies of the cross because they will lead us astray. Now, if we're followers of Christ, if we're born again, we know that the devil cannot snatch us out of Christ's hands. But we can be led astray in a way that is leading into sin, leading into ways that stumble in our walk, that lead us backwards in our walk instead of forwards as we seek to pursue Christ. So we must learn to discern and avoid enemies of the cross because it will hinder our walk. Now, when we look at our text, we're going to hone in on verses 18 through 21 today, where Paul says, for many walk after, after he gives the positive example, right? Follow after those who have that pattern that we have given you pattern of holiness and Christ-likeness. He then contrasts that and uses the word for. 
For many walk of whom, I, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Yes, there are actually enemies out there of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul is not talking about enemies that are, say, atheistic, humanistic, that are outward rebellion against God's people that are an outward of rebellion and trying to refute who Christ is or that God even exists. Paul's not talking about those folks. Paul in this text is talking about enemies of the cross who seem to look like Christians or seem to love Christ or seem to profess that they believe in God. They believe in Jesus, but they are enemies of the cross. Now, this word in the Greek enemy literally means to be hostile. To hate with a deep hatred. It means to be opposed to. Enemies of the cross of Christ hate what the cross represents. They are hostile to it. Now, when Paul opens the verse in verse 18, he says the word for. And he's using this passage as fuel for his command to discern those who walk after a godly pattern and, and follow them. You get what I'm saying? Walk after those who are godly because, he's saying, because there are many that walk that are enemies of the cross. And this actually made Paul weep. We don't have many often uh, verses where Paul's actually weeping, either in, in the book of Acts when he's, you know, actually the narrative of Paul's missionary journeys or in his letters. Now, he was deeply grieved and he had deep sorrow, he said, in Romans 9 over, the, over his brethren, Israel who was rejecting the Messiah, but he's actually weeping in this text, and it's in the present text, present uh, tense. He says, I've often told you about these people, and I tell you again now, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Why was Paul weeping? Friends, Paul was not weeping because these people were the, uh, the non-believing or pluralistic Greeks of the day who believed in many gods, he was weeping because these enemies of the cross of Christ were actually inside and perverting the church. And that's what we want to look at today. This made Paul weep. They're not outwardly obstinate against God. They're actually the tares amongst the wheat that Christ says in another parable. They look like Christians. They walk like Christians. They look like a church. They act like a church. They say the, the right things. But they are enemies of the cross, and we'll look at what makes them enemies of the cross. And yes, friends, that is not very politically correct to talk about. There actually are enemies of Jesus Christ. And a matter of fact, there's only two types of people in the world, those who are, have peace with God and those who are enemies with God. You know, there's no other way to classify those who are people, because if you look through the scriptures, Romans 5.10 says, while we were enemies... That's past tense. Before you came to Christ, you were actually an enemy of God. God was hostile towards you. God was against you. God was at war with you. And that many people don't like to hear that, but that is the truth of Scripture. It says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Ephesians 2.3 says, uh, says, we were by nature, meaning in our natural self before we were saved. Wrote, uh, Ephesians 2.3 says, we were by nature children of wrath. 
Before anybody ever comes to Christ, they are a child of wrath. They have the wrath of God that is being and waiting to be poured out upon them. They are enemies of God. And they actually hate God. And that's a truth that we see all throughout Scripture. From Psalm 14 to Romans 3, chapter 10, where it says, There's none righteous, not even one. There's none who does good. There's none who seek for God, it says. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. No, not even one. And then Paul describes those who are not good in the next four or five verses, where he says, The poison of asps is under their lips. Their feet are swift to shed blood. He's describing these people that hate God. And, and let me just tell you, that, that's not a very good message that people like to hear that don't accept Jesus Christ. They hate God, right? Well, they're a good person. They do good things. They just haven't come to Christ yet. Well, friends, when you, when you reveal the true and living God to a non-believer, it's going to do one or two things. Either by the grace of the Holy Spirit, it's going to draw them, or that hatred of God is going to come out. I've had many interactions with people who I believe are part of the enemy camp that profess God. They say they believe in Jesus, but then you start peeling the layers and you start revealing them to who God is, and a holy God accepts none of their good works. And you can see that hatred come out. Because they have some sense of pride that they've done the right things in life, that they would merit eternal life. So friends, we're either an enemy of God or Romans 5.1, through faith, we have peace with God. So that's the first thing we want to establish. Are you an enemy of God in a salvific sense? You know, it's easy as we're walking the Christian life, it's easy to avoid the outward haters of God, the ones that will be on the street corners to say vulgar things about the God you serve. It's easy to avoid those people, right? Definitely don't want to be by by those people, right? The harder part is to discern who within the church, who within the American Christianity is truly an enemy of God. Because friends, the more and more I study this word, the more and more I realize that there are a lot of voices that claim they're speaking for God, but they are, in fact, enemies of God. We ought to discern first what makes someone an enemy of God and avoid them. So who are these enemies? And how can we discern to be able to avoid them? Well, first, these enemies have a form of Christianity. Enemies have a form of Christianity. I want you to think about that word form for a minute. And, how, and what, am I, what do I mean by that? Well, Paul says in verse 18, he says, for many walk. That word walk is the same word he used in the preceding verse where he says to follow, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Same word. It literally means daily conduct, behavior, but friends, it's the same word that's used in other texts talking about the Christian walk. Uh, for instance, earlier in, the, in Philippians, he says, walk in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. He says that in Philippians uh, as well, not Philippians, Ephesians. Walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling to which you have been called, he says. 
Elsewhere it says, so as you, were, as you have received Christ Jesus, so walk in him. This idea of walking is our daily conduct in our life as a Christian. Now, Paul, when he says, follow those who walk according to the godly pattern. Now he says, for many walk who are enemies of Christ. These people have a form of Christianity. That's why he's weeping. They're actually walking as, as though there are Christians, as though they know God, but they are in fact enemies of God. So that, that word walking is a metaphor that Paul uses for the believer's walk. These are the very ones who say they love God. Oh yeah, oh yeah, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Yeah, I believe in Jesus, uh, but they're not walking according to the pattern that we have here in scriptures. So, so first, we must understand and we must discern that not everyone who claims the name of Jesus is truly a godly example to follow. I remember early in my Christian walk, I would meet a Christian that, or a professing Christian. Oh, wow, yeah, they're a believer. Okay, so I'd start hanging out with them and like, they're living just like I used to live, that God got me out of. And I started to wonder, immature in my faith, why, why are they like no different than what God changed me from? I don't want to be around those people because they're just going to lead me back into the sin that God pulled me out from. So we must discern that not everybody who says the right things has the Holy Spirit in them and walking in truth. Second, enemies of the cross deny the sufficiency of the atoning work of Christ. Now notice the text where he says, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul doesn't say they are enemies of God. Paul doesn't say they're enemies of Christ, but who are they enemies of? They are enemies of the cross of Christ. It's very significant that Paul is using this this term, they're enemies of the cross. We want to look at what does the cross represent to us? What did the cross represent to that time period? And I think we'll be able to get a better understanding of who these enemies are that, that Paul's talking about. Because he doesn't name them. He doesn't necessarily say it's the Judaizers, which I believe that's partly of it. He doesn't say it's the antinomianisms, which means they're the Gentile, um, what do you call it, uh, uh, liberals, right, who claim to know God but were very pagan in their practices. He doesn't name them. But I think when he says they're enemies of the cross, it gives us insight into who Paul is talking about. The cross represented death. In that historical context, the cross cross represented a horrendous way to die. When Jesus said, if anyone wishes to be my disciple, they must pick up their cross and follow me. The people that heard him knew exactly what he was talking about. It was a volunteer to death, death to self. The cross represented death. In the biblical context, the cross represented the sufficient, final, complete work of Christ that he accomplished on the cross. Colossians 2 verse 13 to 14 says this, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgression, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and has taken it out of the way, having nailed it 
to the cross. The debt that you and I have accumulated as sinners, past, present, and future, Christ completely canceled that debt on the cross. That's why he said uh, it is finished when he was on the cross. The word that he used was a word that was used to have a debt that was paid in full. He actually paid for your sins on the cross. Not when you came to Christ. That's when it was applied to you. That's when forgiveness was actually applied to you and the righteousness of Christ was credited to you. But your sins were actually paid for on the cross. And we call that, uh, well, part of the Reformation doctrine uh, when it was further developed by John Calvin uh, called, called limited atonement or uh, particular atonement is the better word for it. Meaning when Christ died on the cross, he actually did something. He didn't make forgiveness available. He actually satisfied the debt of your sins. So you think about that 2000 years ago, if you're in Christ, Jesus paid for your sins on the cross. Romans 5.10 says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, how? Through the death of his son. On the cross, Christ made reconciliation for you and I through the blood of his son. Well, for these enemies that Paul is referring to, the cross just simply isn't enough for them. They must add to it and place that burden upon you. So the, the cross was not sufficient. Now, in the immediate context here in, our, in, the, in the book of Philippians, we do see the Judaizers in that day who were the religious leaders. And Paul here, I believe, is referring partly to them, these religious leaders who said, oh, yeah, Jesus is the Savior. They would actually make that claim. Yes, you have to have faith in Jesus. But you also have to be circumcised to be saved. And you have to follow the works of Moses in order to really be saved. The cross of Christ was not sufficient for them. And these were the religious leaders that were placing that burden on the people of God. That they had to add to the sufficiency of the cross of Christ. And this was all throughout the 16th century during the Reformation. And this is what much Martin Luther uh, wrote against, preached against, and declared against the Roman church who would add to the sufficiency of the cross. The cross was not enough for them. It was Christ, Christ plus merit. You had to extra earn extra merit. Yes, your sins are forgiven, they would say, but you're still sinful and you still sin. So you have to do something to satisfy your sins. So you come to mass where we sacrifice Christ anew. And that's a Roman doctrine that they actually have the power to bring Jesus Christ down from his throne and actually sacrifice him on the altar. You know, not many Catholics even know that, but in their doctrine, and you ask a priest, that is actually their doctrine, that that is Christ, that the elements actually turn that element of bread into the body of Christ and the priest has the power to call down Jesus from his throne and he becomes that bread which they break and they actually say it's a sacrifice for your sins come eat of the flesh of Christ. See, the cross is not sufficient for them. The cross is not sufficient for them. 
Martin Luther, I'll paraphrase, but he says, what is it about your miserable works that you feel like can add to the finished work of Christ? What can you add to the finished work of Christ? And then if it's not enough that you have to sacrifice Christ every Sunday in order to get your sins forgiven, if you don't fully purge your sins in this life, then you get to spend some time in purgatory where you're literally in torment for years, hundreds, thousands, even millions of years purging that remaining sin that you have because the crucifixion of Christ was not enough to them. This is why Martin Luther, before he was saved, as a priest, if you've heard the story, in his first mass, where he understood and was taught that I'm about to to handle Jesus Christ in my hands. See, Martin Luther grew up in the law. He was going to be a lawyer. He understood the idea that when there's a crime that's broken, there has to be punishment. He understood very succinctly that he was a sinner under the weight of God, and he couldn't figure out how to get rid of his sin. It tormented him. He didn't know how to get his sins forgiven. And at one point, he even said, when someone asked, do you love the righteousness of God? He said, love? I hate the righteousness of God. Because Martin Luther looked at that righteousness as a judging that he could never make himself righteous enough to go to heaven. It's all futile. What's the point? We'll back up to his first mass. And he literally believes that he has the power to call down Christ from heaven. And he's handling the body of Christ that he is getting ready to make a bloody sacrifice for. And the weight of that, he couldn't do it. He was shaking and he could not handle the elements. He failed. Because he actually believed that he was sacrificing Christ anew. And so Martin Luther, he spoke out against the ungodly mass. He spoke out against indulgences, works of the law. And Martin Luther actually spoke on this text on the enemies of Christ. And here's what he said. Quote, and this was about 30 years after the Reformation. He says, but the examples before us testify very plainly that the enemies the apostle refers to must be the individuals styled godly and worthy princes and noblemen, honorable citizens, the learned, the wise, the intelligent individuals. Yet, if these could devour at one bite the evangelicals, as they are now called, they would do it. Then he later says, I myself and others with me were dominated by such feelings. When under popery, we claim to be holy and pious. We must confess that fact. If 30 years ago, when I was a devout holy monk, holding mass every day and having no thought, but that I was on the road leading directly to heaven, if then anyone had accused me, if anyone had preached to me the things of this text and pronounced our righteousness, which accorded not strictly with the law of God, but conformed to human doctrine and was manifestly idolatrous, pronounced it without efficacy and said, I was an enemy of the cross of Christ, serving my own sensual appetites. He says, I would immediately have at least helped to find stones for putting to death such a Stephen or would gather wood for the burning of this worse of heretics. In other words, 
Luther here is saying the enemies of the cross of Christ are those who wish to add to what Christ did on the cross. And friends, we need to be very mindful and we need to be discerning those things. And we need to speak for truth and speak against those things and not let those influence us. So who fits that description today? Well, the Roman Catholic Church has not changed much. This is still their doctrine. This is still their belief. So for sure, the Roman Doctrine Church, yes, we are Protestant. That word is protest. We must continue to protest these enemies of Christ. But there's also a new religion in our culture that we must address and we must protest and speak boldly and strong against. This new religion is the enemy of the gospel. It's the enemy of the cross of Christ. It's the enemy of the church because they add to the sufficiency of the cross of Christ. And it's really hard to explain what this new religion is, but it's a morph. It's a, it's a hodgepodge of what we're seeing, this growing church, non-church, this growing Christian uh, movement that denies the essential elements of salvation as it's starting to grasp and hold on to and accept social justice doctrines such as critical race theory, such as intersectionality. I call it and many call it the woke church. That's what's growing and growing fast in our culture. And these are enemies of Christ. Why? Because they add to the sufficiency of the cross of Christ. How do they do that? Well, Tom Askell puts it this way. He says, quote, the whole social justice movement is being driven by a pagan progressivism that has its own doctrines, heresies, disciplines, ethical standards, process of conversion, saints and sinners. From the original sin of privilege to the inscrutable decree of systematic racism, all of the teachings of this new religion must be acquiesced to avoid being branded a heretic. If you refuse to be intimidated by their accusations of misogyny, racism, homophobia, and persist in their heresies, they will cancel you if they do not convert you and make you woke. And they will parade their self-righteousness to their fellow believers, often on social media, by lamenting the bigotry, injustice, and lovelessness of the heretics. Like the Pharisees and the Judaizers, the woke church adds to God's law. When you take this humanistic philosophy and when churches open their doors and start to embrace that, then you have no ending to adding to the works of Christ. You have to add things that Christ already handled on the cross. What do I mean by that? Well, with critical race theory, you have the sin of your ethnicity. The sin of your ethnicity. If you're not of the right ethnicity, then you're in sin. And if you deny it, it makes you more of a racist. So you have to repent of that. But also you have to do works in keeping with repentance, they say. And you have to do things like reparations. That's being talked about. You have to do things like um, um, talking the right way. You, you, you can't talk the wrong way. Otherwise, uh, you, you're, you're, you've sinned. You have to be accepting in it and you have to be tolerant So you see the false church is starting to be morphed with the social justice movement and it's adding, they're adding to the sufficiency of Christ. They're not pleased with Christ taking care of all your sins, but you have to keep adding more and doing more to absolve the sins that were never your sins in the first place. They are enemies of the cross of Christ and we must fight against these godly ideologies. 
So third, enemies of the cross deny the exclusivity of Christ. They deny the exclusivity of Christ. So we looked at those that are enemies have a form of Christianity. They deny the sufficiency of the cross, but they also deny the exclusivity of the cross. Recent research just this last month from Probe Ministries, it's actually a really good ministry from what I'm reading. It shows that over 60% of Americans who profess to be born-again Christians are pluralists, which means they believe that there are other ways to go to heaven outside of Christ. Let me repeat that. These are born-again Christians. And I looked at what they, how they qualified born-again Christians, and it was actually really good qualifiers. I said, yes, that, those are the questions you would ask somebody if they're born again. Over 60% of them believe that other religions can lead people to heaven. How can that be possible in our today? How can that be possible? We've been intoxicated and negatively influenced by the world's doctrine of tolerance and inclusiveness. And we see this with the younger generation. That percentage is higher the younger the person is. Now, what does, that, what does that do when you say, I'm a born-again Christian? Yeah, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. He changed my life. Those were the questions that were asked. He's, in, he's my most important thing today. But they believe there's more than one way to heaven. What do you do when you, when you hold to that belief? Can you really say that somebody is saved? Either they're very deceived, immature in their faith, or they've been so indoctrinated, they're a false convert, and they believe, yeah, Jesus is my way. They hear people like the former Hillsong pastor who always was notorious at saying, yeah, Jesus is my way, but, you know, there are other ways. I'm sure, you know, I don't judge other people. When you hear people like Joel Olstein, who have crowds of hundreds of thousands of people on live TV, prime time, say this exact thing. That, yeah, yeah, Jesus is, is my way, and I believe he's the right way for me, he tells Oprah Winfrey. But I don't judge other people in their way. I think we're all saving the serp, saving the serp, serving the same God. You make Christ a liar, is what you do. You're saying that Jesus you claim to believe in lied when he says, no one can come to the Father but by me. So they deny the exclusivity of Christ. Fourth, enemies of the cross deny the sanctifying work in the believer's life as a necessary means of salvation. Enemies of the cross deny the sanctifying work in the believer's life as a necessary means of salvation. We look back at our text when he describes who these enemies of Christ are. Verse 19, whose end is destruction, whose God is their Appetite, or your version might say belly. Their God is their fleshly indulgences. Their God is their fleshly desires. Their God is the sin that they love to do. Enemies of the cross deny the sanctifying work of Christ in our life. And I say as a necessary means of salvation. In Hebrews, the writer said, pursue sanctification by which no man can see the Lord. Meaning, if you're saved, you will be sanctified. 
You will be growing in holiness, although not perfectly. We have setbacks and sinners can sin or believers can sin and backslide for time. But it is a necessary means. There is no salvation if there's no sanctification. I mean, there's no sanctification. There's no salvation. And enemies of the cross of Christ deny the work of sanctification in Christ. They live for their sensual pleasures. You hear, well, I'm free in Christ. And we're not under the law, but we're under grace. Has anybody heard that before? You're right. You're absolutely free, I tell people. But the Bible says you're free from sin to become slaves to God. Read Romans 3, 4, 5, and 6. You're not free to live however you please. Brothers and sisters, when we come to Christ, when we truly have been born again, we've relinquished all of our rights. We have absolutely no authority over our bodies. Do you understand that? We have absolutely no autonomy over how we live, the decisions that we make. It's all of God. And we must be seeking daily And every decision that we make, how does it line up with the word of God? Not how I feel. The Bible says that the heart is deceitfully wicked above all else. Our hearts as believers are still, will still lead us astray. We can't trust how we feel with things. We have to look at what God says specifically about things that we do. Now, decisions that we make are not always in scripture, right? Do I take this job or this job? We shouldn't look for a sign from heaven that God's going to send a bird down and land on this side of the house, which means I'm going to take that job. But God gives us wisdom to decide which job is better to take. Do I have a family? Which job is going to hinder me blessing my family with my presence and discipling them? Oh, this job over here is going to take me away for weeks out of the year. And this job here, although it pays a little bit less, I'm going to be able to spend more time at home. God gives us wisdom in his word for that. Amen. And that's what we need to make sure that we are being renewed, as it says in Romans 12, that we are daily being renewed by the word of God. But we have this what I call cheap grace, or many have called cheap grace, that Christ forgives us. And it doesn't matter how somebody lives. If they made an honest profession and, hey, they're walking in sin. It's been 12 years and God hasn't changed them. Well, they're still going to heaven. Well, I don't see that anywhere in Scripture. I don't see it anywhere in Scripture. And this is running rampant in our culture. In the prosperity gospel, you see it running rampantly. If you actually knew what some of these prosperity gospel teachers their lives, some of it has surfaced over the last 10 years. I mean, it's sick. It's egregious. We see this with easy believism. I saw this earlier this week with local, quote, pastor Stephen Furtick. He posted on his social media the following. He said, following Jesus does not change you into something else. That ought to be your first sign to not follow that man. Say, as following Jesus does not change you into something else, it reveals who you've been all along. What would it be like to see that you, I'm excuse me, he says, what would it be like to see the you that God sees? End quote. There's so much wrong with that statement. I could preach a whole sermon 
on that statement. I would, be, I would be actually very fearful if I could see what God sees in my sinful heart. That would be scary. But he says, following Jesus doesn't change you into something else. Well, my Bible says those who are in Christ are actually a new creature. All things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. He says it doesn't change you into something else. It reveals who you've been all along. Now, this comes from the mentality that we see all throughout the prosperity gospel and this kind of, you know, Stephen Furtick and elevations like more like prosperity, light and contemporary man-centered theology. This all fits in within their theology. We read it and we're shocked. But people who are following this man and others read it and they love it. Why? Because there's this man-centered theology that we are so great that God saved us because we're so awesome and God wants to give us a, a, an amazing life. And, you know, deep down, deep down, as Joel Osteen said, people are just good. You know, they may do bad things, he said to Oprah Winfrey. No, it's Larry King. They may do bad things and make mistakes. You'll, you'll always see they'll never say sin. They make bad choices. But he said, you know, Larry, just deep down, people are just good. And I'm wondering if these people ever read their Bible. Because scripture from Genesis to Revelation is that man is evil. Man hates God. Genesis 6, 5, when God saw that every intent of man's heart was only evil continually. Commit that one to memory so that when you come across somebody who is following one of these enemies of Christ. Like you want to rescue these people. That's what our mentality should be. Especially if they're a believer and they're being misled, we want to rescue these people with gentleness and love and ask, how can somebody be good when Genesis 6, 5 says that, that their their intent continually, the, the Bible says, is only evil. It's only evil. That was before the before the flood. Then after the flood, Genesis 8, around verse 12, God says the same thing. Man's heart is evil from his youth, he says. And then Psalm 14, God looked down, it says, upon the world to see if there was any, any who sought for God. And he was left wanting. And that's where Paul quoted Psalm 14 in Romans 3.10 to say that there's none good, not even one. As I mentioned earlier, friends, this is one of the main problems in our society. We're not facing much of the problem that Luther did, although that's there with the Roman Catholic Church. This is the, the, what's running rampant in our country. So again, we cannot, and we're living in the South. How many people do you come across that say they're a Christian? There's so many. But I guarantee all these studies that are coming out that are pointing to the same thing, that 60 to 70% of those who claim to be believers are in fact enemies. You know, you're an enemy of Christ if you tell people, yeah, I believe Jesus, but there can be other ways to heaven. You're actually, you're actually undermining the gospel. And you're actually hating somebody by telling them that. Because you're sending them straight to hell. You're sending them straight to hell because you're affirming their beliefs. Oh, good. Okay, so I just got to be a good person and I can believe whatever it is I want to believe. It's running rampant. You know, Matthew 7, verse 15, Jesus, towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, You know, he gave us that warning about false prophets, false teachers. He said, you'll know them by their fruits. 
Bad trees cannot produce good fruit. So we'll know them by their fruit. So fifth, enemies of the cross are simply put foreigners of heaven. They love themselves. They hate God. They, they uh, indulge in their appetites, as the, the verse 19 says. Why? Because they're not citizens of heaven. If you look at verse 19, it says they set their mind on earthly things. Where God calls us to set our mind on things above. Those who are enemies of Christ, who claim to know the way, who claim to love Jesus, they set their mind on earthly things. Is that not what we're seeing in today's society? Everything is about me, 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 earth, 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 possessions, 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 is it not? In those false churches like Elevation and others, salvation is about me. Salvation is about God making my life better. Sanctification, even if they mention it, is not about growing in holiness. Sanctification is about what? God making my problems going away. God healing me. God making this situation better. It's all about me. We've elevated ourselves. Why? Because these people, their citizenship is not in heaven. Their citizenship is not in heaven. Verse 20, for our citizenship or our commonwealth, your version might say, is where? It's in heaven. From which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That ought to bring us an overwhelming amount of joy, friends. Our citizenship is not here. We're just passing through. We are ambassadors of Christ. But how you can spot an enemy of Christ is their passion is for the things on earth, for material things, for temporary things. That's all they talk about. That's all they want to pursue. That's what they set their minds on. Now, I'm not saying that Christians can't fall into that because I confess that I've fallen into that trap of thinking too much of earthly things. But deep down inside of those believers, ultimately our desire is heaven and to dwell and to think about heavenly and spiritual things. Paul contrasts their end where he says in verse 19, their end, the enemies, their end is destruction. Their end is judgment. Their end is hell. Their end is torment. But our end, our end bodes well for us. Our end bodes well for us. Verse 21, he will transform the body of our humble state. Now, other versions I like, actually, because it says vile state or evil state, because our body, even though we're saved, our body is corrupted by sin. He will conform us. He will conform us into the uh, conformity with his body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Now, how many of you know that the verses and chapter breaks are not inspired? So sometimes that can throw us off. So if you continue reading verse 1 of 4, Paul says, therefore. Now, whenever the therefore is there, we want to see why the therefore is there. Four, right? When he says, therefore, it's a culmination or a conclusion that he's getting ready to make for a reason why he's going to give another action or another command. So he says, therefore, because of all of what I told you, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown... In this way, stand firm in the Lord. 
Your version might say, so stand firm. But that word in the Greek, I think it's translated accurately here in the NASB, in this way. In what way? Well, what he just described. In the immediate context, in this way, knowing that our citizenship is in heaven, in this way, stand firm in the Lord. But in the greater context, the broader context, I believe you want to look back at the beginning of chapter 3, where he transitioned into warning about the evil workers or the dogs, he says, the false circumcision. So in this way, if you look back at all my sermons, starting at chapter 3, verse 2, I believe that Paul says, in this way, stand firm, is referring to all of chapter 3. What do you mean? Well, if you look at the first few verses, knowing what makes a true Christian, when he says, we are the true circumcision in verse 3, who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Knowing who the true Christians are, you'll stand firm in the Lord. Not only that, knowing what it means to be converted. There in verse 5, 6, 7, 8, counting all things to be at loss. Knowing what it means to be a converted Christian is how you will stand firm in the Lord. Knowing what our number one goal and aim in life should be. As we talked about in verse 12 and 13. Knowing what our aim in life should be. That we should be pursuing Christ's likeness. Knowing that we should be pursuing to be like Christ. And looking for those to follow after. In that way. Stand firm in the Lord. You will stand firm in the Lord. By keeping your mind set on Christ. By looking for godly examples to follow. You will stand firm in the Lord by marking those who are enemies of the cross of Christ and not be influenced by them. Friends, even if they give you a little bit of truth, avoid them at all costs. You know, these guys like Stephen Furtick and others, sometimes they'll say something. I'm like, that's truth, but I'm still going to avoid them. Because that little bit of truth mixed with a little bit of poison will hinder your walk with Christ. So knowing who the enemies are will help you to stand firm in the Lord. And knowing that our home is ultimately in heaven. Knowing that throughout the total demise of our country, that this is not our home. That our home is with Christ. That we will be with him. And ultimately, as we seek to be conformed to his image, the great news is, friends, is that we will be conformed to his image. He says it right there in verse 21. He will transform us into the conformity with the body of his glory. And our final glorification, he will transform us ultimately and we will be like him without sin, without sadness. Every tear will be wiped away as it says in the end of Revelation. We will be with our Lord and Savior, the one who saved you, the one who is growing you in Christ, the one who ordered all your steps since before you were born. We get to be with him for all eternity. So friends, if you want to stand firm in the Lord, you want to not be shaken, you want to be firm in Christ, I commend you to look at chapter 3. It's been a couple months that I've gone through this, probably been, I don't know, four or five months. Commit it to memory, study it, look at it, and it will change you, and you will grow, and you will stand firm in the Lord. Well, next time, we will begin a, a great study on conflict resolution. 
As Paul says, stand firm in this way, in verse 2 through 9, he actually gives us very practical ways to grow in our Christ-likeness. And coincidentally, the first one he gives, he's urging two people in the church to work and live in harmony. We're going to look at what it means uh, to manage conflict in a godly, honoring way. And I don't know how many sermons I'm going to preach. I want to preach a lot because conflict management is a key to a good marriage. Conflict management is a key to any good relationship. It's a key to our church and growing in unity. And we're going to look at what the Bible says about how we are to manage conflict when it arises. Because as sinners, it doesn't take that long to run into conflict, does it? So we'll look at that next. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, your word is good. It is profitable for teaching for correction, for training in righteousness. Lord, I love that last part. It's good for training in righteousness. Lord, I pray that this text today would train us in regards to righteousness. God, give us discernment according to your word. Help us not to lean on our own understanding, but to look to see what your word says as our final authority, as our ultimate authority. God, give us discernment to mark those who are enemies of the cross of Christ to avoid them, to avoid their negative influence. Now, God, help us as we seek to become more like Christ to find those who are godly influences that, that have the example of Paul as he says, follow me as I follow Christ. Uh, Lord, help us. Give us those godly influences in our lives, Lord. And Lord, may us, may we here be godly influences for those in our lives, in our circle of influence, for our children, for our parents, for our brothers and sisters, for our family, for our church family, God, may we be an example to them. Oh, Lord, and when conflict arises, as it inevitably will, Lord, let us manage that conflict in patience and love and humility. And Lord, that you may be honored and glorified. We thank you, Lord, for this time together. We, may, we pray that Christ will be glorified in our life. In your name we pray. Amen.